Today is Christ the King Sunday, and uh, it is a very festive celebration. Uh, we get to hear a portion of that crucifixion story from John's Gospel as our Gospel text here this morning. Um, but what I wanted to begin with was that Christ the King also marks the end of the church year. And I was thinking and reflecting upon that this week. And as humans, you know, we, we do like to mark time. We like to celebrate birthdays, and we like to uh, celebrate anniversaries. We also have memories of those beloved saints who have gone before us. We may mark, mark those anniversaries. We have calendars. We have yearly candle, calendars that begin in, in, in the month of January. But if you run a business, perhaps your fiscal calendar starts in the month of June or some other month. Then we also have lunar calendars, and those last for 354 days. So if you use a lunar calendar as your primary mode of marking time, um, you're going to have to add um, an extra month every couple of years. We use the solar calendar as a nation, as a, as a world, and uh, with that calendar, we only have to add a day every four years. And so... The church also has a calendar, and we call it our liturgical calendar. It is appointed towards the liturgical times of the year. And today, this Sunday, is Christ the King Sunday. And it marks the end of our calendar year. Next Sunday is the beginning. Do you know what that particular liturgical day is? The first Sunday of Advent, yes. Yeah. And so calendars help us to mark endings and to create new beginnings. How many of you have stayed up to watch uh, Times Square on New Year's Eve? Uh, we usually get to see Father Time, the old man walking around until there's a new baby. And then we have this, this new birth. But today I wanted to look in particular, at some of the ways that we might celebrate endings and beginnings. I've had a couple of vacations that I really didn't want to end. I don't know if you've ever had that. I remember in particular when our children were very little with some seminary friends and families, we were on a beach house in North Carolina that was just exquisite. And when that day came that we all had to pack up and leave, it was like, oh, we're just kind of getting used to this life. Some churches are making the difficult decisions as to whether they can continue to exist or not. And those who can't will have to mark their endings. There's one in particular um, that has just ended its ministries here in, in the valley. And uh, one of the ways that they are giving life is that they have sold their church and uh, have dedicated those funds to different missions uh, to support the work that we're doing collectively as, as a synod. This past week was another ending uh, for me, and that is um, an ending at the seminary that I attended, uh, Luther Seminary in St. Paul. Um, I went there when there, was, there had been a merger of two seminaries. Luther Seminary was the, um, the old American Lutheran Church Seminary, 
And then across the street was Northwestern Seminary, which was the Lutheran Church in America Seminary. And then in um, 1987, uh, those seminary or those uh, church bodies uh, joined together uh, to form the ELCA along with the breakoff of the Missouri Synod. And, and so um, actually years before that merger, the seminaries saw that it was beneficial for them to, to combine forces since they're both teaching Lutherans that would soon be a part of the same Lutheran body that they could not duplicate so many services and those were the heydays. That's when, you know, there was 150 students in my graduating class at seminary. Today, it's a blessing to have 150 students in a seminary. And not in just one class, but in the whole seminary. And, and so there's some realities about costs of maintaining facilities and equipment and staffing. And so... The long-range plan for Luther Seminary, they ended up dropping Northwestern from their name, um, which was itself a bit controversial, but they now refer to themselves again as Luther Seminary. But they, they had made the decision to sell some of the property that was not necessary, was not needed. And so the Northwestern building, um, which was an integral part of the campus when I was there, has been sold to a developer. And um, because of online teaching and because of um, decreased student enrollments, um, we don't need as much physical space. And so there were two primary chapels at the seminary when I went there. Uh, the Olson Center has the very large chapel. If you buy your Jenny O turkeys, you can thank the Olson family for that gift. Uh, for uh, as you buy your, your turkey this, uh, for this Thanksgiving. And uh, then the North, Northwestern Chapel um, was the smaller chapel. And um, uh, so th those were the two that we used. They closed the Northwestern Chapel this week with a special service and ceremony. The preacher was a classmate and dear friend of mine, former bishop of Southwest Minnesota Synod. Pastor John Anderson, and um, one of the things that he and the director of alumni all spoke about during this ceremony was that this chapel was so important to many of us who were trained to be pastors. It's the place that, that we preached our first sermons, believe it or not. It was the place where we had gone through classes... In, in my day, you didn't preach a sermon until your senior year. You had, to, you had to get the information down first before they wanted to hear anything coming out of your mouth. And so it was your senior year that we would preach sermons from that chapel. And then I also recall doing my worship and liturgy classes in that chapel. Uh, that's where I first discovered that children can't see if they're sitting behind or standing behind a tall person. Um, we were told to be children, to sit in our chairs and have the people in front of us stand, uh, and stand up, and so we, we couldn't see a thing. It, it was a place where they did that kind of training and teaching to prepare us for ministry. And so it was a bit poignant and sad to see that this chapel 
would no longer exist. In particular, there's a beautiful crucifix that stands right in the center of this chapel. And it was uh, created, the sculpture was created by uh, an artist, Paul Gramland. And um, in this particular depiction, you have uh, a life-size crucifix, a man hanging upon the ladders of success that is wedged into the cross. And, and so it, it, had, it spoke of so many different aspects of our life today. And um, so that particular cross, thankfully, um, I guess in recycling they call it, it's being repurposed. So it'll be found somewhere else on the campus. Um, so they're not, they're not getting rid of that um, part of the, of the chapel. Endings can be painful and they can also be disheartening. But God also promises us, promises us new beginnings in the midst of old endings. Christ the King Sunday is where we remember that Jesus came to reign amongst us as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords. In Christ the King Sunday is where we see Jesus' reign and and its beginning in the very betrayal of who Jesus is. It's an interesting word that's jumped out to me as I studied the text this week. Betrayal. To betray someone, paradidomi, to be handed over, to give up. In chapters 18 and 19, which are the story of Jesus' crucifixion in John's Gospel, in those two chapters alone, this word is used eight times. However, Judas only uses them twice in the beginning. Or they're only referenced to Judas twice in the beginning. Um, the other times, they're referenced to other people. In our reading today, Pilate is quite clear that it is Jesus' own religious leaders who have betrayed him. In verse 35, Pilate retorts to Jesus, your own people and their leading priests have brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Pilate is clear that Jesus has not only been betrayed by Judas, but he has also been betrayed by the religious leaders of his own faith and by many of the people who follow these religious leaders. I think you all know what it feels like to be betrayed. At some point in our lives, someone has wounded us deeply. And you know the feeling. And it hurts. And Jesus is betrayed in a profound way that is not just done by one person, but has been done by every single person. Jesus was also betrayed by Pilate. When Pilate 
uh, when Pilate mocks Jesus and presents him to the people, they demand that he be crucified. The people are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says that if they want to crucify him, they should take him and do it themselves. Pilate has offered Jesus up to his own people. You go and do it. There's a lot of irony here. When Pilate mocks Jesus and presents him to the people, he is betraying Jesus back to the very religious leaders who brought him. So you see, it's not just Judas who is betraying Jesus. It's the religious leaders. It's those leaders' followers. It is Pilate himself. Everyone is betraying Jesus. We hope that there would be an out for Jesus, right? But there is none. His betrayals, all of those who betray him, will lead him to only one place where there is no out, and that is to the cross. As I mentioned, the story is packed with irony. Pilate's interrogation of Jesus makes him sound like he thinks Jesus is innocent. Oh, this man, you know, he's, it doesn't kind of, when you read through John in that section that we read, you know, he's like, well, what have you done? Why are they bringing you here? Um, but just after that interrogation, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 19, we hear what, Jesus, or what uh, Pilate really thinks of Jesus. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged, scourged, with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews! They mocked him as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I am going to bring to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Look, here is the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and the temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate has Jesus scourged. This is the beginning of a crucifixion. We think of crucifixion as beginning and ending on the cross. No, it actually begins with being scourged. So Pilate is planning on Jesus' crucifixion all along. Even though he finds him um, innocent, he doesn't find him worthy of crucifixion, um, he is willing to do crucifixion because he doesn't really believe Jesus is anything anyhow. And so for Pilate, when he brings forth Jesus, he brings him first to be scourged, to be flogged. That is um, a stem of a, of a piece of wood that has driven into it, uh, woven straps. Within these woven straps are either fragments of bone or metal balls, and when they flog when they scourge someone they scourge them all along the back and down the legs and it cuts and slices through the skin and it also um, by the end of the scourge usually has exposed the spine 
and perhaps even some internal organs. This is a brutal preparation for crucifixion. But it's part of the way that they take these people who are to be crucified in order to weaken them. Then he is dressed in royal clothes, purple. That's the color of purple. If you look for a bunch of clergy in clergy shirts and their clerical collars, if you want to know who the bishop is, look for the purple shirt. That's the bishop. Because they get to dress royally. The rest of us dress as commoners with black shirts or maybe gray shirts. And then, not only is he scourged and dressed in royal clothes, they mock him. And they pretend, make, they make him a pretend king. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. Pilate does not really see Jesus as innocent. He sees him as a play, as a threat to his power. Not Jesus personally, but how the religious leaders are using him to manipulate him to crucify Jesus. And so Pilate is interacting with Jesus knowing that how he interacts, how he acts and reacts to Jesus will also play with the Jewish leaders who he is no friend of. And so he is working his way back manipulatively just as the religious leaders have been working their way forward manipulatively. And the pawn in this whole game is Jesus. Finally, we have a word of clarification. When Pilate is questioning, interrogating Jesus, he says, your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? And Jesus' answer is this. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus responds, you said I am a king. Now we have often heard that as a question. I had a professor at seminary who said that the question is not clear. That it could be interpreted as a question or it could be interpreted as a statement. And his theory was Jesus' response says that what Pilate was telling them was not a question but a statement. Pilate said, you are a king. Jesus' response is, you say I am a king. But then Jesus clarifies everything. He said, actually, I came into this world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth and recognize the truth hear my voice. So what Jesus is telling us is that he is the truth. And that what Pilate has just declared 
is the truth. That Jesus, that Jesus is an innocent man. In verse 37, he says that. You are a king. We can tell from Jesus' response that it's not a question but a statement, as my professor showed us. We can also tell from Jesus' response that he is clarifying that it's not just about his kingship, but it's about the truth of his kingship. Pilate continues to prophetically, ironically, profess that Jesus is innocent. The second half of verse 38. Then Pilate went out again to the people and told them, he is not guilty of any crime. There he says it again. But let's be clear. Pilate does not see Jesus as a king, let alone the king of kings. Pilate offers to release Jesus as a Passover gift. It's the tradition that they, the Romans, would offer a Passover gift to the Jews as they celebrate the Passover. Important um, introduction here that it is the Passover when this is all happening. The religious leaders in the crowds shout back to Pilate. They are opposed to having Jesus released for Passover. They shout they shout out this, if you release the man, this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. They're telling Pilate that if he releases Jesus, he is no friend of Caesar. The religious leaders and many of the Jews have gathered in preparation for the Passover. The Passover is the celebration where they focus on how God is the king of the universe how there is no other king above God. There is no other ruler above God. As a matter of fact, they begin the Passover prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, king of the universe. And in the midst of this focus on Passover, this is what the religious leaders say. When they demand that Jesus be crucified, they begin to chant, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. So much for the Passover celebration. The religious leaders and their followers do not see Jesus as the king. In fact, they're willing to sacrifice their own faith in God in order to have Jesus crucified. And they say that they have no other king than the Roman one whom throughout the rest of the Gospels they despise. The truth here is that Jesus reveals that he is the only one in this story who sees God as God, who sees God as the king. He's the only one. The religious leaders and their followers don't see it. No one else believes that Jesus is the king, yet Pilate has declared him legally as a king. Remember a little bit later on in the story, he has them write on the placard that will hang over his cross, 
Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So legally, Pilate has declared it. It, is, it carries such important weight that the religious leaders come to Pilate and ask him to take it down. We don't want any authorization of Jesus as a king. You remember what Pilate says, what I have written? I have written. What he has decided, he has decided. Sometimes the law speaks the truth even when it is not done in truth. From here, Pilate had Jesus mocked, scourged, flogged. And then, this is the next one. Then Pilate betrayed Jesus to the executioners. He handed him over. That's how it gets interpreted. Literally, he betrayed Jesus and gave him to the executioners. Jesus is crucified. Now this is the place in this story where Jesus becomes crowned as king. This is Jesus' coronation. Some of you have been fans of watching the, the crown, the series, the crown. And you may remember in the first series when uh, Queen Elizabeth has made the queen of England. Uh, the, the big celebration, the service that they have as they crown her as the queen. Well, Jesus is crowned as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And his coronation is celebrated as he is hoisted up upon the cross. Now, for many people, this looks like the end for Jesus, doesn't it? He breathes his last. He gives up his spirit. It is finished. I mean, that's what everyone thinks. The religious leaders and their followers, Pilate and the Romans and the crowds, the reign of the so-called king of the Jews is ended. It is, it is over. It is finished, right? Well, endings are not only painful, but they also feel permanent. The loss of a job gives us that feeling. The end of a marriage. Retirement. Maybe you have a favorite football team, and it's the end of the hopes for the playoffs. No matter what, Endings can feel painful and permanent. But they can also expose our vulnerabilities, which is why we really don't like them. But with God, Jesus is willing to endure this ending because God has promised him that through this ending, he will experience a new beginning. And he does. When three days later he is raised from the dead as he had testified to that truth. And then he does something remarkable. He offers you and me the same privilege. I mean, I am not worthy of that privilege, of that honor that Christ has given me that he would take me 
and that he would redeem me, that he would offer me a new life. But Jesus' words still ring true. The words of truth. When he says, you say that I am a king, for this I was born and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. As vulnerable as endings make us, as permanent as endings seem, what Christ the King is trying to tell us is that the ending that you fear is not the end. It is the beginning. And it is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father except through me. Let's continue to meet together to worship God in Jesus Christ and to listen to his voice. Amen.